The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT, today's News Talk. We're in hour number two of this live broadcast. Thank you for rejoining us. Hello to everybody in the TNT chat room. Great to see you guys in there as well. I want to welcome on to the line uh, American journalist Sam Husseini. He's joining us right now on the live link. Sam, uh, tell us about the updates on the genocide convention, what's happened over the weekend, uh, before the weekend with South Africa, invoking the genocide convention. This is something that you've been pushing uh, for a while now, campaigning on your social media accounts. You, yourself, and other journalists, other activists have been pushing this. It's finally happened. Sam, uh, give us the latest on this. Absolutely. Um, so South Africa finally pulled the trigger on it, and in a very... Um, you know, overwhelming way. They put out an 84-page document detailing uh, a whole list of accusations of genocidal activities and intent by Israel. Um, and um, uh, the Israeli press is already running articles that they are seriously concerned. And you've had Israeli officials already excoriating South Africa and saying that, you know, history will judge them harshly and that they're... Uh, that the uh, the uh, successor to the apartheid regime in, uh, of of South Africa is is teaming up with Nazis against Israel. Um, um, so um, the we don't know yet exactly when the hearing will be. I've heard reports that it'll be on the 11th and 12th uh, of January. Uh, South Africa had asked for sooner. Um, the president, uh, the, the current president of the uh, International Court of Justice, um, is a former State Department official. So I don't know, but I imagine that she tried to put this off as much as possible. Um, so it's a, you know it should have happened within a week. Um, it's going to happen um, by the eleventh and twelfth. Um, you could have a a, a preliminary or uh, judgment uh, or order uh, within a week after that. So uh, you will likely have something resulting from this uh, before the end of the month. Um, Francis Boyle, who did this for Bosnia in the, in the 90s, um, still thinks even you know with the US having the presidency of the uh, International Court of Justice or US, a former US official being the president, um, he still feels very strongly that uh, some sort of uh, victory and relief, um, uh, legal relief, uh, is likely uh, to come uh, to come from the court. A major thing that needs to be happening now, and you're, you're, I'm just starting to see reports about a whole series of groups that are going to be coming out for this, is to call on other nations, Brazil, Bolivia, uh, Jordan, uh, you know, uh, Belize, uh, who, who, uh, Nibia, uh, whoever, uh, to be uh, effectively backing up South Africa and filing uh, what in court parlance is called declarations of intervention. That is where they basically, you know, you know, you know, tee off on several points that South Africa is making and saying, 
you know, we really back this part up, we back this part up, we back this part up. So if a lot of countries do that, um, then uh, I, I think that that'll um, help the South African uh, case uh, significantly. Um, and it'll also help South Africa in that, you know, in, in any time a country poses a serious challenge to the U.S., to Israel um, in this manner, um, I don't think it's, um, you know, going out on a limb to say that there could be reprisals um, uh, against them. Um, so if you have other uh, countries um, chiming in and uh, bearing the weight of that, then that minimizes the possibility that you will see some kind of retaliation uh, by the U.S. or Israel or other pro-Israeli states uh, resulting from this. So so from, from the U.S. point of view, politically, this isn't something, is this something that, uh, well, politicians in Washington, the Biden White House can just kind of turn their nose at, ignore. What about the yeah. UN ambassador in the United Nations, Thomas Greenfield? Uh, what is that going to be acceptable? Uh, will they, or will they have to react to this? Will they have to, uh, basically implement, uh, this in terms of their policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel? What do, what do you think? I think if they're going to try to find ways to attack it, to marginalize it, to water it down, to work around it, uh, I think that there will be a whole series of mechanisms that they attempt to employ in order to get around um, a meaningful judgment by international law. And it's up to South Africa and other states and other movements and independent journalists to, uh, to expose and scrutinize that. Um, I, I don't think that they're suddenly going to wake up and say, oh, sorry, we've been wrong this whole time. Um, or we're, we're going to do right from here on in. Um, so, um, you know, uh, they can't shrug this off. Uh, this is the high court of the United Nations. Um, and it, Israel is a signatory, um, to the genocide convention, and it doesn't have a reservation on the clause dealing with the International Court of Justice having um, power uh, to decide such matters. So, um, uh, you know, uh, Israel, I'm seeing reports that Israel will show up and will argue the case. There have been cases, there have been times when countries have been charged at the International Court of Justice and they just didn't show up. It looks like Israel's going to show up. So um, it's going to be a fight, um, a legal battle. Um, the uh, South African team is headed by John Dugard, um, who's a very serious um, uh, international, widely renowned international lawyer. He was one of the most prominent uh, white South Africans who was opposed to the apartheid regime um, and I believe moved to U Europe for a time and where he maybe, you know, has, you know, goes back and forth now um, out of disgust uh, of the apartheid regime. So they seem to have a, you know, an incredibly powerful uh, legal team. Um, um, I, I, I sense that Israel may, you know, try to, you know, sort of, you know, th th there could be a judgment that says stop all genocidal, uh, and, and this is just, you know, speculative on my part, what I'm saying now, um, where the court could say, 
stop all genocidal activity. But that might not necessarily mean ceasefire. Now, South Africa has, of course, called for a ceasefire, but that may or may not come out of this case. But the damage done with a finding, which seems possible, certainly not assured, but seems possible that the International Court of Justice will have a finding that Israel is committing genocide, will trigger a whole series of other events. Um, for one, it'll put pressure on the International Criminal Court, which has done absolutely nothing useful uh, to um, uh, you know, start talking about what individuals are responsible for the genocide that the International Criminal Court, uh, with the International Court of Justice is saying, you know, you know, maybe saying is happening. Um, uh, this will spark moves at the United Nations. The U.S. will attempt to block them. Um, and uh, then it'll go to the General Assembly under Uniting for Peace. The rest of the UN needs to get serious uh, uh, if the UN is going to have any legitimacy whatsoever about implementing things. Um, uh, this will mean, at minimum, um, I think, suspending Israel, uh, as they did apartheid South Africa from the General Assembly. Uh, it would mean admitting Palestine as a member. Um, it would mean uh, if the International Criminal Court is re still refuses to do anything, to set up a tribunal uh, to go after individuals. So uh, those are just some of the things that can result um, from uh, from this uh, step going forward that South Africa has initiated. And I think I think it's significant that it is South Africa who has uh, made the move here. Just symbolically, historically, it it does it, it's important. It's not it's not a small thing. But you know, you're talking about other countries, you know, piling in with declarations of intervention, etc. You're talking about the potential for a tribunal suspending Israel from the General Assembly. All of these things, Sam. If you look at how the international community was marshaled with with Washington behind it to sanction and condemn Russia uh, in the aftermath of uh, Russia's uh, special military operation, as they call it, uh, at the end of February 2022, and that was almost like a reflexive international response to Russia. Um, and But here you have, these are really the most high violations uh, when you're talking about the Genocide Convention, tribunal suspension uh, from the General Assembly. I mean, is this not a platform for countries to sanction Israel? Because certainly there's a lot of justification for it when, you, when you're getting into these areas, Sam. Uh, is, that, is that a possibility? Yes, I think I think economic um, sanctions may well result from this. This should tremendously empower the boycott divestment sanctions movement uh, against Israel, which itself is modeled on what was done regarding South Africa. Right, you had Britain and the U.S. continuing to support South Africa, and it was largely because you had um, groups, um, you know, basically forcing economic sanctions against South Africa. That, that eventually helped tear down um, uh, apartheid there. Um, uh, 
uh, it could also empower things like uh, universal jurisdiction, where you can have various countries um, use their own legal systems to go after individuals. You, you, this was most noted when uh, Spain went after Pinochet and after the Gulf, uh, after the Iraq invasion, you had some European countries um, charge Rumsfeld and other U.S. officials um, uh, using uh, universal jurisdiction um, things. So I, I think that you'll see a lot of different legal activity um, come out of this. And I mean, sort of big picture, what you know, it's, what, what's being born is hopefully a you know a robust global system that actually holds <laughs> criminality to account so that uh, legal systems are not just simply a uh, another manifestation of power but are actually a check on illegitimate power um, uh, that's the question now if the international criminal the International Court of Justice is not up to that and doesn't fulfill its mandate. Um, and the International Criminal Court continues um, to be an instrument of U.S. policy, even though the U.S. isn't a signatory to it, then the entire system is a farce and the entire system needs to collapse. Um, so th this is, in a sense, a judgment on the system itself, um, I would argue, um, uh, not just simply a case of the system um, judging the situation. Um, uh, the, 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 the system itself is under judgment, in part because we've seen a global movement um, and hopefully uh, combined with the global movement, uh, you will see serious change. Um, for example, I mean, the U.S. had a judgment against it uh, uh, at, at the International uh, Court of Justice uh, when it mined the harbors in Nicaragua in the, 19, uh, uh, in the 1980s. And there was some activity on that, but the, U, you know, the U.S. just kind of went along its merry way, um, uh, at least to some extent. Um, I, I think that this is a more perilous situation because you do have, because it is a genocide, um, and because you do have such a, you know, fairly vibrant uh, global movement going on, and that that ultimately is what's driving a lot of this. And also in the past, and maybe you can comment on this, Sam, is that when bringing these types of uh, international legal actions, you know, gathering evidence, the painstaking job of collating and bringing all that together, and then also proving intent, the, these have all been obstacles sometimes from people making um, these sort of legal efforts. Um, it doesn't seem like that's going to be a problem here because there seems to be, well, a plenty of evidence and statements of intent by multiple Israeli officials, high-ranking officials. So from that point of view, um, this is this is this the strongest case that's ever been brought um, under this banner? Yeah, I mean, several um, uh, scholars um, and, uh, uh, you know, leading political and legal observers have said this is unique in um, in, in 
the, the, the brazenness with which Israeli officials have said, have articulated their genocidal intent. You just had the finance minister, I think, yesterday or the day before in Israel say, um, you know, we, we need to depopulate uh, Gaza. But, you know, if, if we only have one or 200,000 uh, Palestinians in Gaza at the end of this, that's a lot different than having two million, you know, uh, you know, having more than a million, whatever. Um, so, um, you know, they, they are outright saying genocidal statements on a regular basis from the, from the beginning of this. Their uh, defense, so-called head of defense, said no food, no water, no electricity. That's a genocidal statement right there. Uh, their order for mass civilian uh, movement, uh, that's, that's genocidal right there. That, 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 that is inflicting massive pain and suffering. On, an, uh, on a national group. That is what the Genocide Convention was designed uh, to prevent. Uh, uh, it, it is, Israel has succeeded in preventing uh, information that should be getting out, right? They, they have not let independent observers in, they have not let international media in, and they have killed uh, upwards of 100 Palestinian journalists. Um, uh, so I think that, you know, some people say Israel is, you know, killing indiscriminately. I don't think they're killing indiscriminately. I think they're targeting, uh, they're targeting journalists, they're targeting, uh, civilian structures and, uh, civilian populations and hospitals and so on. Um, so, um, you know, so they've attempted to limit the information, but there is sufficient information and their statement of intent in South Africa. Um, it's, it seems has done a very strong job of documenting it. So I think that the International Court of Justice, also known as the World Court, will be hard pressed uh, in spite of any pressure that the U.S. can apply to not come to a, um, an order uh, that uh, Syria, puts serious pressure on Israel to cease and desist. And, and just in terms of immediate relief, if, you know, is, will this be able to somehow uh, open the flow, help open the flow of aid? Because you got this immediate problem of the blockade. Um, you mentioned the problems with this being equated with a ceasefire. Put that aside for the moment. How about the issue of aid, uh, also targeting hospitals, and, um, a cease and desist on that type of activity, but just on the aid issue, this is a huge problem because don't we have a humanitarian crisis uh, brewing now that's going to manifest itself very soon? Sure, I mean a, a huge part of the the, uh, uh, the application by South Africa is to say that Israel is preventing aid, is preventing electricity, is preventing food, is preventing medical care, and so on. Um, so I think that they would be in a very difficult position to attempt to continue to prevent uh, the aid and relief and medical care and uh, so on from, from going in. Um, uh, you know, we still don't know to what extent Israel wants to go completely rogue here. You know, I mean, they could just say, hell with you, we're just going to keep doing it. Um, and then you know, um, you know, what pressure will come to bear on the Biden administration to finally rein Israel in. 
and or um, how much are other countries going to be able to do or willing to do? Um, you know, uh, I mean, during, you know, you've had the, 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 you know, the U.S. put together a coalition to militarily destroy Iraq uh, after the 1990 invasion of Kuwait. Um, and, and yet, you know, Israel, you know, has decimated Gaza over and over and over again with complete impunity. So um, the, the, those are the stakes, whether the legal and potentially economic ramifications are enough, or if it's going to have to escalate further um, is, is a very serious question. I mean, you also now have the situation separate from this in, in many ways with uh, the Houthis uh, blocking, you know, I mean, one could argue that the Houthis are effectively implementing <laughs> um, what <clears throat> the uh, General Assembly called for in terms of ceasefire. Now, there, there's no legal paper trail on that, but that's effectively what's happening. Uh, the, you know, the General Assembly said ceasefire. Israel said hell with you. Houthis said we're going to block your ships until you do a ceasefire. Um, so, um, you know, what other countries are going to be capable of, uh, stepping up the, the first step in that process though, as I say, is for other countries, uh, to, um, file, uh, motions, what are called declarations of intervention, uh, backing up South Africa. So, um, you know, I think that's the thing for, you know, that activists are going to be pushing for in their respective countries. Um, and virtually any country can do this. Um, most countries, the vast majority of countries are signatories to the genocide convention and the vast majority of those, um, uh, you know, uh, accept the, uh, world court's jurisdiction on the matter. So any country that does both of those things, which is the vast majority of countries, uh, can file, uh, to back up, uh, a declaration for South Africa. Well, these are things that we're going to have to keep a close eye on, and uh, I want to encourage people to follow, especially follow the the ex uh, Twitter feed of Sam Husseini. We've got a link to it right now at Twenty One Wire. That's who you want to follow on this issue to get all the up to date uh, information. Sam Husseini, American journalist, thank you very much for joining us I, on TNT I, this week. Sure, I'd also love to point people. I just wrote a piece on my Substack that sort of breaks down the legal aspects of this, and it has a spreadsheet of the different countries and where they stand um, in terms of uh, their their legal, uh, you know, posture. Uh, in my Husseini.substack.com. Okay, and we'll drop a link uh, to Sam's Substack as well in the TNT chat community. We'll also pin that to our tweet as well we have right now on our feed. Sam, thank you very much for these updates. And also, uh, I just want to recognize that um, you personally have put a lot of effort into pushing this idea out uh, over a long period of time, really for you know the last couple of months. And um, and I want to recognize you, and, and there's other activists who have done the same. And collectively, I think it shows that you know we can make a difference if we really work hard and 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 push these sort of things out into the conversation. So thank you for your your sterling efforts on this. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you.
And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, that is Sam Husseini, journalist based in Washington, D.C. Follow the updates on the genocide convention. It's going to be very important and pivotal going forward. Let's take a break right now with the network. We'll be right back after these messages. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. What do I love about riding? It's the thrill. The excitement. Riding gives me a sense of freedom. I feel so connected to the road. Riding is like therapy to me. It makes me feel alive. Love riding? Back off. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. What a tremendous segment by our last guest, uh, Sam Husseini, based in Washington, D.C. And as we said before the break, Sam and others have been pushing for the invocation of the Genocide Convention, calling for any country to pick up the ball and run with it. And their calls were heard. It It took a couple of months, but it happened. South Africa has made the move. And we think over uh, over a period of time, this is going to be very, very significant. This is going to be lingering uh, in the legal environment for a long time now. And this is a tar brush that Israel will not be able to wash off for years, if not decades. And that's why it's significant. But there's a lot of pressure. And as Sam says, he's not going to rule out reprisals by Israel, perhaps against uh, officials, political officials, or anybody involved, dirty tricks. You're going to see the potential uh, defaming or character assassinations with anybody involved on the South African side on this. Uh, And then at the sort of level when this comes to trial, who's going to be handling this at the ICJ level? Sam talked about the fact that you've got top, you know, U.S. ex-people in key positions there, Uh, you know, gatekeeping, if you will. So, listen, not out of the woods yet on this, but it is an important first step. Certainly, it was a necessary first step that really needed to happen and uh well we got our hats are off to to him and uh, everybody else uh for their efforts going forward it's very important listen all people want is accountability because i think there's a little argument that what we've witnessed is war crimes on a scale never seen before in a very short window of time uh it's shocking to say the least and the fact that uh, you know the united states is a co-belligerent in this been supplying the bombs been supplying the ammunition, reconnaissance, intel from drones, 
I mean, the United States has a lot to answer for on this. So, you know, you can put them, you can bundle the United States government and its role in assisting and being a partner with Israel in this genocide in Gaza. So I think we can say that now. I think the naysayers, uh, the propagandists, the gatekeepers, the people that want to cover this conversation up now for the last three months, uh, they're going to have to basically take a hike and run on this because uh, it's now in the par- common parlance of the public conversation. So, listen, great job uh, and every everyone involved in this. We'll keep getting updates on this. It's going to get interesting, folks, and it's not going to be over. This is going to go on for years, and it should because what's happened is unconscionable. I think we can all agree on that. Now, we're going to do a hard pivot right now uh, into the world of finance and cryptocurrency. Looking forward to 2024, we have a lot of our listeners that are in the crypto space, involved in the crypto space, either as a, a casual investor or some serious uh, crypto heads out there listening. So I want to bring Blake Lovewell onto the line right now, uh, who's going to give us a little bit of a look forward, the outlook for crypto in 2024. Firstly, Happy New Year, Blake. Hey, yeah. Happy New Year, uh, Patrick. Um, Also, happy Christmas to the Christians, happy solstice to the pagans, and of course, happy Hanukkah to the uh, Jews too. Um, Hope you're all well over there. Yeah. Isn't there an African uh, one called uh, Kunza or... Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa, sorry. It's sort of like... It's called Kwanzaa. It's a a bit of a modern um, invention of the sort of um, African-American community to sort of uh, get back to the roots there. But yeah, happy Kwanzaa to any... uh, uh kwanzaa celebrators out there as well um but yeah cryptocurrency well it promises to be a massive year in not only crypto but in economics too um you know looking back at 2023 there's been uh lots going on as well and and you can sort of extrapolate from those things what might be happening um but simultaneously uh the crypto sphere is something uh, of a novelty still i mean it w- it was only that uh, about 10 years ago that bitcoin entered the mainstream consciousness and it was only created about 13 years or so years ago um so it's still very novel in historical terms and the ripples are only just starting to be felt uh in the um sort of uh, greater economic sphere and pardon the pun there ripple xrp one of the top 10 uh, uh, crypto tokens that's an important one to keep an eye on they uh, in the last month did a deal with mastercard um so now mastercard will be using ripple uh, as one of their um uh, tentacles into the blockchain environment uh, mastercard is you know obviously one of the biggest payments uh, processes in the world and so they wouldn't be uh, remiss they would be remiss to uh, forget about uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies um, i think what we're going to see from uh, mastercard and ripple and that kind of adoption is the adoption of blockchain technologies but they will want to steer away from uh, bitcoin and the original kind of ideologies they want to um, develop their own thing which might have the same branding you know try and pretend it's part of the same um, you know, uh, sphere of interests, but it will very much be in uh, under Mastercard's leash, um, uh, a controlled environment. That's interesting. And uh, so XRP, that wasn't a plug by Blake. Uh, he's literally just reporting what's going on in the market. So big coin movers right now, uh, Bitcoin massive rally before the new year. Uh, everyone's really hot on it. But, but, but uh, the ETF announcements, 
on the funds this is coming or is there going to be some heel dragging on this you've also got the splits coming up the bitcoin split you've got ethereum splits i believe um give us a little bit of an insight on the big coins uh ethereum bitcoin etc xrp um yes so uh well xrp i'm not plugging it i'm actually not a big fan of xrp uh i'm a big fan of decentralization and i think that uh what ripple offer is a sort of uh um a bridge for the uh old old e economic uh, powerhouses to move into crypto um but then you know uh only if it gets adopted will it be useful and so on so yeah no definitely no plug for xrp maybe an opposite of a plug um but yeah etfs that's another big story moving forward we we actually you have one ETF. These are um, exchange traded funds, uh, something that can be traded like a uh, stock or a share, a similar um, sort of arrangement there. Um, but an ETF um, can be a, uh, all sorts of things can be an ETF, uh, but large, large um, asset holders create them. Um, so you could have um, an ETF that's based on a bundle of stocks. So you, you'll be gambling on the, the price of that bundle of stocks going up or down. Um, and similarly, um, uh, companies are vying to create an ETF based on the price of Bitcoin, and thereby you can um, uh, somebody who a, comp a company can uh, bet on the price of Bitcoin going up or down, but they don't have to get involved with the fundamental base layer. They don't have to buy any Bitcoin to be involved in the uh, gambling on the price of it, or you know, hedging and uh, making a profit there. Um, so ETFs offer a way of companies that don't want to be involved in crypto hands-on because you know the regulatory environment is very complex and um, might cause them problems down the line um it offers them an avenue to use um uh, say blackrock is one of the biggest um, players in the field um, blackrock will offer an etf way whereby its asset holders can get involved into um the gambling on cryptocurrency without you know getting their um hands dirty um, but we obviously uh, like to have our hands dirty and be involved with the real thing and we we obviously wouldn't be using uh, blackrock as our um main asset holder but when when a company like BlackRock, or you know, I call it a company, it's it's you know they hold the biggest amount of assets of any uh, corporation in the world, and uh, they're a financial organization. Um, you know, up in up in the uh, rated in the trillions of assets. So um, you know, if they're getting involved in an ETF, this means that there's kind of a mainstream adoption, at least of um, you know, uh, uh, um, someone wanting to be involved in. Uh, Bitcoin and the price gambling, but they don't want to be involved in the base layer, as I say, because um, for various reasons, they don't agree with the ideology. What does this mean for Bitcoin? Well, lots of people see this as a sort of adoption uh, by, you know, BlackRock and other big uh, financial movers and shakers. That's always good and it boosts Bitcoin's price. Um, there are also downsides for Bitcoiners because if BlackRock can move 500 billion in a day um, into a Bitcoin ETF and push the price up or down, that affects the price of the actual Bitcoin, which affects the uh, economic arguments for mining and the price of Bitcoin itself and so on. So if you've got big players able to manipulate the price, that could offer a bit of a danger. Um, so I would be hesitant to say that ETFs are a good thing for Bitcoin, but um, that's kind of a broad summary on ETFs. And you mentioned a Bitcoin split. Well, there's a Bitcoin halving um, going on in the next year. And, and what that means is um, that the reward for mining a Bitcoin block will be halved. Currently, I think it's at six Bitcoin for a block and it will be halved to, sorry, six and a half. It'll be halved to 3.25 Bitcoin. So 
the same number of people will be mining Bitcoin, but we'll get half as much in a reward. So, you know, it, it often pushes the price of Bitcoin up um, because of the economics of that. And it's, it's kind of baked into Bitcoin to have this um, halving of the mining reward um, over time to try and keep things competitive. And so far, um, you know, if you trace halvings, it also gives this massive boost in Bitcoin price. So people are looking forward to that. I think that so many people have talked about it, that that price increase is probably already baked in to a large degree. So you won't see a massive boom as you have in previous years. People kind of understand the economics of it. Um, and then lastly, you mentioned Ethereum there, and um, Ethereum's been sort of stagnating a bit since they moved last year from proof of, uh, excuse me, uh, from proof of work to proof of stake, um, which I, you know, uh, I get a bit flustered about, as you can hear me getting flustered here, mm -hmm. um, because proof of work is, you know, the hardcore uh, fundamentals of Bitcoin and real cryptocurrency. You have a big computer doing beefy computations. You're proving you've done the work and paid for the energy to do that computing, and you've earned by mining some cryptocurrency proof of stake which um you know it's much more eco-friendly because you're not doing mining well it's pretty much um whoever owns the most controls the votes and that's basically the fundamentals of oligarchy uh, like you had in the post-soviet union it was whoever owns the most assets kind of controls the country and um until putin managed to wrestle some control off the oligarchs i mean they're still in power there and oligarchy is not my favorite system of governance i much prefer the um, meritocracy of the proof of work system system that uh, fortunately many cryptocurrencies um well actually only a few uh remaining good cryptocurrencies have proof of work so um um yeah it doesn't seem that people are that keen on ethereum um you know not as optimistic as they are on bitcoin as a good hedge against inflation ethereum promised all this stuff with nfts and smart contracts and um many other people can offer the same products. So there's a lot more competitors there. Um, so I'm not as bullish on Ethereum, um, but we'll see this year if Vitalik Buterin, who has come out of his hiding stage to uh, make all these pronouncements about the, the roadmap going forwards, we'll see if he can um, shore up support for Ethereum. Yeah, that's interesting. You, you, you're, you're contrasting the difference between uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. I mean, I'm just on, on a having of Bitcoin immediately, that's going to potentially push out smaller miners, potentially, you know, if they don't expand their mining operation, mm -hmm. to cover that shortfall. So that could, you know, that's a consolidation of mining on the Bitcoin side. Um, and then also less de less decentralization in that respect um on paper anyway maybe you can mm -hmm. comment on that and then on the ethereum mm -hmm. side they have mm -hmm. the the triple having system but they're not having when when ethereum does it they just reduce the the issuance of new ethereum so they don't they, you know because they're proof of stake yeah that they, they don't have a natural yeah it's called having. burning yeah explain the explain these these two well, yeah, halving is a regular, I mean, Bitcoin um, operates on a time scale of blocks. It doesn't operate on a time scale of actual um, Earth time, um, but it usually corresponds to every couple of years there's a halving in Bitcoin reward. And yeah, as you say, if the rewards are lower for mining, it means, you know, you have to, uh, you're putting the same amount of energy in. So, you know, uh, you're getting half as much um, Bitcoin for your energy on average. So yeah, it could push out miners. I would contrast that with the fact that uh, mining is at an all-time high if you measure the hash rate the global hash rate of every miner who's computing and trying to work out you know trying to win the lottery for the next new block that's still at an all-time high so there's there's definitely a lot of confidence in the short to middle term future of bitcoin 
for the miners and they really want to get all of their mining done before the halving um, and then they'll have to reassess but there's a lot of complicated factors with um uh, difficulty adjustments in Bitcoin, which could, um, you know, balance out some of those increases. But that's, you know, we're going really into the long grass of the technicalities there. Um, um, but yeah, so it's it's a really interesting time. And uh, there's, um, you know, there's a thing called ordinals where um, you can put an NFT onto the Bitcoin blockchain. And what this means now is that huge amounts of data are being uh, buried into each Bitcoin transaction um, as NFTs. And what this does is really drastically increases the rewards for miners too. So mm. um, uh, ordinals I've, I've actually got as a real one to watch because, um, you know, not only is it another NFT type boom, but it affects the fundamentals uh, of mining Bitcoin. And also it's it's starting to cause a bit of a problem of bloat where um, whereas you'd have 10,000 transactions taking place in one block of Bitcoin in 10 minutes, you know, it's no comp competition to Visa who can do half a million transactions in the same time. But it's still, you know, you could use that as a global payment service. It's, it's not super efficient yet, but um, if one person creates a really bloated transaction that fills the whole block, they can block the whole global Bitcoin network for 10 minutes, um, just creating one of these uh, NFTs uh, called ordinals. And so if that continues to uh, grow as it's growing exponentially right now as a trend, um, people are going to have to really look at the fundamentals of Bitcoin to see if there's a resolution there. Um, so there's kind of a bit of a war going on between the ordinals NFT people and the people who are kind of um, trying to you know create this modern payment system in Bitcoin. Uh, so we'll see how that tug of war evolves over time. And for sure, I'll keep you updated. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, stress test uh, on the on the global blockchain chain network there. Very interesting. Exactly. Very interesting. So just overall, you know, uh, you know, we saw in the last couple of months, we got uh, Bitcoin over forty five thousand uh, dollars, pretty <laughs> significant rally over the last three months. And a lot of people are, you know, they've been bullish on Bitcoin right now. Uh, there's a little bit of trepidation, though, going into the new year. I see some people saying, is it a good time to sell right now? Is there going to be another dip? I know you don't like to get into these sort of market predictions or anything like mm -hmm. that. But, you know, what's your general comment on that? Just from the investor point of view, I know you don't look at it as an investment uh, per se, um, like some people might. Uh, uh, but, yeah, I, I do actually. But go ahead, your comments on this. It's it's a really, yeah, yeah. It's such a complicated um, value proposition, you know, the, the things that make Bitcoin valuable or that you can use it for. Um, you can use it for international payments. It's one of the cheapest ways to send large amounts of money around the world. Um, other than, you know, there's other cryptocurrencies that are cheaper for transactions, but then Bitcoin's like the biggest, so it's a bit more trustworthy. Um, but then, yeah, over time, um, if you invested in January 2023, 100 uh, uh, excuse me, pounds or dollars. By December 2023, you'd have 200 pounds or dollars. Um, that being said, if you invested in 2021 summer, um, $100, um, by the end of the year, you'd you'd be down to $50. Um, so, you know, within a year, it's it's um, volatility is still quite high. Uh, so as a long-term investment, it's hard, was a medium-term investment, it's hard to, to say that it's a safe bet. Um, but I would say over the longer term period, what we do see is um, despite uh, small scale rises and falls, there is definitely a net trend over at least uh, uh, the 13 years that it's been out in uh, the public um, sphere of a constant uh, growth trend. So um, it depends how you view those two things. Um, 
it's definitely something you can use outside of the modern banking system. And what we're seeing, at least in 2023, we saw this massive trend towards central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Um, so um, getting into cryptos, not only Bitcoin, but other other privacy insuring cryptocurrencies like Monero, um, those could be good hedges against uh, centralized control. So it depends what you're wanting to get out of your money. If you're wanting a safe haven, you know, perhaps gold is one way to do that. Um, but it's it's a lot slower to get gold and then you have to look after it. Whereas Bitcoin, you know, it's you know, it's all on you to look after it and look after your keys. But it's much more fungible in the sense that uh, you could cash it in in about an hour and have it in your bank account or, you know, however you want to interact with um, Bitcoin, too. So um, the value propositions, as I say, are, are very variable. Um, and I must note as well, you did mention uh, about Ethereum and, and I, I mentioned about burning. Um, Ethereum's model is when they create too much Ethereum, they just basically burn a lot of the supply to make it more scarce, um, which is one option that um, governments could probably take note of by, uh, you know, slashing zeros off their um, hyperinflating currencies. Um, but it's not a great model for restoring faith in your currency if you just have to burn loads of it to try and keep the value. Um, it doesn't seem as valuable. But yeah, so as I say, there's lots of different value propositions. It depends what you're looking at, looking for. That burning that you're talking about, government burning of currency, isn't it? Now, I, I know I don't want to get off. We've got only a couple minutes left, Blake, but I don't want to go into this rabbit hole. But C yeah. CBDC, central bank digital currency, clearly yeah. it's on the horizon. There's massive efforts by major central banks to push these things. And isn't that their mechanism of yeah. value protection is burning CBDCs? That's basically what is, is that not what they're, they're proposing for that? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's definitely one aspect um, of CBDCs is is this like burning or what they what they say is a, a expiration date, something like uh, yeah. an expiration date. So um, if the money is created, it, it may only last a year, um, but it could be very infinitely more complex than that. You, you know, if you earn money from uh, or if you're sent money from a friend, they could put a different expiry expiry date on that. You know, short term, uh, six months to a year. Whereas if it's government issued money, it could be two years to five years. And and coupled with that, you have all the different control mechanisms. Of of where you could spend that within which country, whether you could transfer it across borders, whether you could use it at different shops or for different products and services. Um, but yeah, what they want to control with um, the expiry date is actually more to do with the velocity of money. Mm. Um, so if a government um, uh, sees too little economic activity going on, they can suddenly reduce the expiry date on the money. They can say, oh, well, actually, your money's going to go off in one year or six months time. So you'd actually better get spending. And that, that kind of fosters a, um, a higher spending environment, increases the velocity of money, which you know usually goes hand in hand with economic growth, because if the money's being spent, it's kind of greasing the wheels of the economy is being invested um it's being cycled through and through so um it's more about controlling the velocity of money but then as a citizen it's not a very pleasant uh, value proposition to have your money um going off like a rotten banana in your wallet mm. um rather than being something like the old silver dollars where you could bury it in the garden in a hundred years it would probably increase in value um so yeah that's uh, a similar proposition um uh, to Ethereum's burning. Um, yeah, if, if Ethereum is burning some portion of their currency, then it's more scarce. And, you know, um, scarcity uh, drives the price up or should drive the price up in simple economics.
That's an interesting proposition there, Blake. The the, the RB coin, the RB, the the rotten banana coin. Uh, I don't want to say that you know what coin, mm-hmm. uh, the SHIT coin of the, of the governments, but we'll call well, it, it the RB. Goes with all, it goes with all these. Yeah, it goes with all these um, bored apes. They can be eating rotten bananas. Um, bored ape being one of the biggest uh, NFT schemes out there. But yeah, it's definitely. Uh, a lot of schemes and scams out there to watch out for. And that's why people are flooding towards Bitcoin as a bit of a safe haven right now uh, to try and weather the storm. But we'll see uh, how it harbors, how it fares. That's a good mem. It's a good NFT, the p- potential NFT project we can drop. The the RB, the Rotten Banana, the Bored Ape. <laughs> so maybe maybe we'll see some, of the, uh, some action on that front, Blake, uh, in 2024. But yeah, listen, Blake, love well. Appreciate it. And uh, Blake's also got a very good featured article uh, in 2024. But yeah, listen, Blake, love well. Appreciate it. And uh, Blake's also got a very good featured article, which is going to be going up at 21stCenturyWire.com on this very subject about the outlook for crypto. We're going to be publishing that uh, any moment at 21st Century Wire. So keep an eye on our website there. Subscribe as well to the newsletter where you'll get that blasted article from Blake. But Blake, Lovewell, really appreciate you coming on TNT this week. Yeah, absolute pleasure, and it's great to be back with you guys after the break. And uh, love the love the content you're producing and everything at TNT. No, thank you very much, Blake. Love well. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Listen, I think that's all we've got time for today. Amazing segments from Sam Husseini in America and Washington, D.C., Medea Benjamin as well, anti-war activist. Very informative. Great to hear from everybody. Great to see you guys, our listeners, either in watching in color on TNT, whether you're listening or watching. We appreciate your mem as a member of our audience. From myself, Patrick Henningsen, your host, that's all we've got time for today. Take care, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow with another impactful program. Don't miss it.